You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 57, and it features a conversation with Shanti Sathuraman and Hawada Fu about personalized medicine and wearable devices. This conversation took place at the 2018 Joint Statistical Meetings in Vancouver. Now, before we get started, I want to congratulate Yuan Wang and Satrajit Roy Chowdhury and the rest of the steering committee for a very exciting regulatory industry statistics workshop, the second in a row to sell out. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. Hi folks, our topic today focuses on personalized medicine and wearable devices. Today I'm talking with Shanti Sathuraman, Senior Director of Global Statistical Sciences at Eli Lilly and Company, and Hawoda Fu. Research Advisor, Advanced Analytics and Data Sciences Group at Eli Lilly and Company. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Before we get started, let's hear a little bit about your backgrounds. How did you become interested in statistics and what led you to the pharmaceutical industry? Thank you, Richard, for having us over. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is a very exciting topic, uh, as you can see. Um, to your question, I was actually interested in mathematics in high school, but then I got more interested in statistics and operations research uh, when I was in college. Um, I actually received my Ph.D. in statistics from Virginia Tech, uh, and my research actually revolves around automatic process control. I decided to go into the pharmaceutical industry because I really wanted to see the real-life applications when we're looking at statistics. My name is Hao Da Fu. My interest for math and statistics is coming from my family. My father is a statistician, so I was choose my majors. My father told me statistics will be the future because in the future, all the decisions should be made on data. After I got my bachelor's degree, then I decided to go to U.S. to pursue my Ph.D. I got my Ph.D. from University of Wisconsin-Madison. When I was approaching the graduate time, I think I want to choose some careers to use the data and to help many people, so that's why I chose the pharmaceutical industry. So if you could, uh, you can uh, describe your current roles at Eli Lilly, and, and how did you decide ultimately to end up in the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, my role at Lilly is I'm currently the senior director uh, for the Diabetes Complication Statistics Group uh, within the Global Statistical Sciences Organization at Lilly. Um, and this is where you know, we uh, are directly involved with uh, and drive innovation through statistical sciences across the clinical drug development, submissions, post-launch direction, and connected care. Uh, for me, um, being in this role has opened my eyes to a lot of things, especially with respect to uh, data-driven decisions. And there is plenty of data that actually comes from patients that we may or may not be utilizing as, as much as we should. So in this role, trying to see how and where we can use this information, um, not only for our medication and how we develop the medication, but also decisions for the patients in terms of how they can use this ben medication that best benefits them. 
I ended up in pharma because actually I actually had a, uh, a short stint at DuPont in the manufacturing world. And then I got a, um, a call from Eli Lilly and company for an interview. And I thought, oh, you know, I just needed to get a job and I'll go there. But once it started there, I've been in the company for over 22 years and I wouldn't trade this for anything else because the more I learned about the pharmaceutical world and how much we're able to benefit, the patients are able to benefit. At the same time, there is a lot of research that we can actually do. And with the state of technology changing so fast and how the benefits can actually, uh, how the benefits can um, be uh, realized more and more through information, I decided I'm not moving to any other industry. Yeah. So my current role is uh, I'm leading the Lily Machine Learning and Artificial Intelligence Group to support company-wide machine learning and artificial intelligence activity. So I have been in Lily for 11 years. I've been in different positions. When I was first joined Lily, I was in the early phase, and a few years later, I was in the phase three, leading the insulin device team. And all, during the past five years, I worked with Shanti on this medical affairs, and also you, how we can use the real-world data to help in the player side. So how I, mm, it's interesting I end up with working at Eli Lilly and the company, but I was always thinking about how we can use my skill set to better contribute for the communities. So while that's back in the 2000, 2006, so I was thinking to apply some, some intern job. Uh, I got offers from one, another large pharmaceutical company from Merck, and it turned out to be my wife got pregnant in the summer. So I turned down the offer from Merck, but during the summertime, Merck called me. We have one permanent position for there. Do you want to interview? Um, so I was thinking about why not. Why not? So, but at the same time, I talked with my other friend. My friend was that I have a few friends already working at Lily. They mentioned Lily is also a good place to start your career. So I applied for both Lily and Mark. I got both offers, and in the end, I chose Lily because I have more friends for there, and it's a good uh, place to raise the families. And just a quick question. So artificial intelligence is obviously a very hot topic. Uh, when somebody asks you, well, what is artificial intelligence, uh, how do you describe it, keeping in mind that people are probably thinking about science fiction, artificial intelligence, and, and how do you describe it? That's the excellent question. So our team in machine learning and AI is primarily focused on the applications and how they can better help in the drug development. So as you described, when the people uh, think about artificial intelligence, they always think about the robot. But if you do go to the artificial intelligence papers, go to some scientific conference, you can see what lots of time they talk about optimizations and how to formulate the problem, to how to develop the algorithm to solve the problem. We work on a few areas. Either, instead of working the robot, and we develop the algorithm. But as one of the examples, we develop the algorithm to help to automatically calculate how much of the insulin is going to inject for the patient. So we can use that to optimize the patient outcomes. And what I would just add to that is, um, um, to what Howard was saying it, I think the, as we're able to get more information from the patient, for an individual patient, the algorithm learns in terms of the patient's activities, in terms of what they eat, whether they exercise or not, or how much do they exercise, and when do they eat, or, or, or even where do they go to eat. And I think that kind of information when the algorithm is programmed in a way that it learns for the individual patient and ahead of time is able to predict or advise the patient in terms of what they should be doing. So I think that's kind of when we say artificial intelligence, I think we are talking more around that. So I think Shanti mentioned a really good point because ultimately we want to use the algorithm to generate a value. 
we firmly believe that value can, can coming from personalizations, how we can better use the personalized solutions and to improve the patient outcome. Great. And today we're, we're discussing, uh, Shanti, you and I met at the 2016 International Indian Statistical Association Conference in Portland, Oregon. And there you gave a presentation about using wearable devices to gain insight about therapy uh, in type 2 diabetes. Now, before we discuss that work, can you give us a little bit of background on diabetes and the types of devices that are used to manage the disease? I'll start, and then Howard can jump in um, as we go through this. Um, you know, I think, um, I don't know how many people actually realize that diabetes is actually a very chronic disease, and a lot of people actually live with it, and they think some of them don't know that they have it, and some of them who know they have it, they feel like, oh, it's no big deal, I can manage it. But it's a chronic disease, and it actually impacts over 28 million people in the United States, and approximately half of them cannot even achieve, they have not even achieved their glycemic goal. Plus, as people are more diabetic for longer periods of time, they have key comorbidities that happens because of this chronic diabetes, and these are prevalent across organs like liver, kidney, and heart-related ones. So it becomes extremely important to develop drugs for the the diabetics, and it's not just the type 2, but it's also the type 1 diabetics. And it becomes very important for the patients and physicians to be able to make decisions for themselves that's optimal for the patient. Now, there are various devices and technology that can actually help the diabetics. Um, I'll just give a few. They're not limited to it, and then Howard can provide more. Uh, I think people go through the continuous glucose monitoring device that's giving them in real time in terms of what's happening with their glucose levels. Uh, There are digital applications. There is also the open and closed-loop systems. Uh, So, for example, a closed-loop system that consists of a pump that people have and then the drug, which is the medication, and then the continuous glucose monitoring. And as part of the pump, they also have the algorithm that Howda mentioned. So what happens is the CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitoring device, is actually looking at the glucose levels in real time, and it's communicating to the algorithm in terms of the glucose level, and I'm simplifying this, but then the algorithm, um, because of the way it's made, it can actually tell, okay, how much insulin needs to be given to this patient, and then the pump then delivers that amount of insulin to the patient. So this kind of a closed loop is really one of the key devices that actually patients benefit from. Um, so and it's really necessary for the diabetics to have this because it enables them to keep their glucose in, a, in, the, in the target range that they need to which is actually much better than their standard of care that they would normally have. Now, digital applications around digital biomarkers can also enable patients. It's another application where people can, you can actually identify which patients uh, should be given what type of treatments and the right medication that they need to be given. So as we mentioned, we believe the, uh, the device and the smart device can really generate a value for the patient. So the question, where is the value? The value can come from a personalization as Shanti just mentioned, through this smart device, we can better understand the patient situation. So the situation can be like the outcomes. At the CGM, uh, Shanti just gave the example. Uh, so, the, for example, some of the company like Dexcom, they just release their CGM, like G6. They can measure the patient blood glucose on every five minutes. Think about the traditional situation. Patient can only measure their blood glucose, get a finger, get a finger point, and have some or the blood samples uh, three or four times per day. But right now, with the more intensive monitor, and we have large opportunities to significantly in, improve the patient outcomes. And also, the device can better understand the patient behaviors. The behavior also can lead to better taking care of the patient. As one of the example, 
uh, everybody talk about how can we improve the patient adherence on the treatment. Payers is interested in that. Uh, pharmaceutical company is also interested in that, that ultimately provide benefit for patient. Uh, through the analytics, we, feel, we found that the patient lack of the transportation will significantly related to the patient adherence. Think about the case, if the patient is living in a certain area, they don't have the car, they have, uh, don't have too much uh, access for the public transportation. So at the moment, they may not kind of easy to uh, refill their tr treatment. And we found this pattern, and we can provide alternative solution. For example, mail orders, just through the smart device to GPS information, we can better understand the patient's kind of behaviors. This is sort of an aside. Have you seen that continuous glucose monitoring and using these closed-loop systems, have they, ever, have they re resulted in better clinical outcomes with regards to other endpoints, cardiovascular endpoints, liver endpoints? Has that been shown uh, within the literature? That's a great question because I think it really comes back to some of the things that uh, Harda was talking about. So what I want to, before I answer the question, what I want to say is there is the short-term and then the long-term impact. I think what we've been talking about is the short-term impact. Now, we will have to continue trials to say that if you continue to monitor it and if you're able to keep the A1C within target, does it actually you know, reduce, say, hospitalization due to cardiovascular issues? Or does it reduce um, issues with dialysis, for example, or liver transplants? Now, I don't think there's been a direct link so far for studies to show that this has happened. Now, there is literature to show that there is linkage in terms of what measures you can look at. And long-term, yes, you can look at it. So the linkage that we have seen so far has been, when you look at some of the GLPs, uh, and most recently, you know, um, uh, leader study, uh, the sustained study through semaglutide, and Lily is running the rewind study for dulaglutide, and the SGLT2s that we did with Jardians. You can see, at least for those, that you can say that these are the ones that's supposed to reduce your A1C and to some extent even your weight loss that has shown it's not like a direct link, but we know it's reduced A1C and reduced weight loss. At the same time, it is shown from your outcomes that your hazard ratio is statistically significant. Now, all the in-betweens still need to be sorted out, but it kind of makes sense from a literature in the past that this link does exist to some extent. So I would say that's kind of how we would see this. But more and more as we come up with these drugs, we have to show that, okay, when we show this much in decrease in A1C, I'd be able to translate it to the appropriate outcomes. So we have shown it for A1C and weight loss, but there is more that we can actually do. I think Shanti summarized is really good. So in, in general, one part is from a long-term perspective, they are clearly to demonstrate the lower A1C is related to lower cardiovascular event, in particular the UK PDS studies. It's a very famous study and clearly demonstrate the relationship. But uh, uh, so far we didn't see some of the smart device and the link with the long-term study, but we do have very clear evidence the short the, uh, the smart device can uh, better to provide a better glucose control in short term in terms of A1C reduction and uh, uh, glucose control in range. So what, uh, I also, not only for Lily and other company like uh, Matronic, the G670, uh, and they have a bunch of the publications and studies related to the short-term benefit.
thing I would add there, Richard, is uh, which is not necessarily easy to show the links is, you know, whenever we show that A1C reduction in a drug and weight loss reduction in a drug, and at the same time when we run the cardiovascular outcome trials and we show that the hazard ratio is statistically significant, there is a lot to do with the mechanism of action to make sure that we truly understand to a great extent what is the mechanism of action to it and how that mechanism of action is actually translating to a better hazard ratio. Well, thanks for those additional details. Um, well, what prompted uh, this research into wearable devices for diabetes in the first place? At a pharmaceutical company, we truly believe that beyond the treatment, there's uh, a whole system that can help in the patient. And so we are talking about this uh, diabetes connected care, care, because not only for the treatment, how to use the treatment also matters when we need to use the right treatment at the right time for the right patient. So that motivates us us to think about developing a whole uh, ecosystem they call diabetes connected care, to use a smart device and doing the recommendation for the patient to truly uh, generate a personalized solution. As Howda mentioned, I think um, one of the things is uh, you were asking about the question around prompting the research is because Lilly over time has developed broad, broad choices of treatment in various classes. That includes DPP-4 and SGLT2, GLPs, insulins, and even in the insulins, we've had short, intermediate, and long-acting ones. So I think one of the things is Lilly has a portfolio of medication across the different classes of drugs. So I think while these tr- treatments are available, and are beneficial to the patients, we have wanted to increase their experience with these treatments where they can control their glycemia and reduce their hypoglycemia incidence through continuous monitoring and decision-making at the same time. And I think that's part of the reason why this research is is the individual treatment recommendation, given that we have a plethora of drugs across the different classes that's helping us say, okay, what is the best thing that the patient can actually look for themselves in terms of the treatment. And going back to Howard's point, what is the value that this treatment and the treatment uh, portfolio of treatments can give the patient? It sounds like you're relying on devices typically seen in d- disease management uh, with the, the insulin pumps. Uh, are there other devices that you're exploring uh, as well that may be uncommon to diabetes care? Uh, so right now, some lady diabetes product uh, were in insulin pumps and the pens we also think about to leverage digital technology to connect different types of devices together to improve the patient outcomes. So we have the insulin pumps, but also Fitbit, a smart device, can provide additional information related to a patient practice around, the, uh, for example, like uh, the exercise, food, stress. And the Fitbit can also gather such information and to better helping us to develop algorithm for the personalized solution. I make one example. If the patient doing a lot of exercise before they sleep, then probably kind of we can measure the uh, nocturnal hypoglycemia event. If they do see a clear linkage, then we can do the recommendation before the patient sleep. Maybe they can take some snacks to reduce the risk of uh, nocturnal hypoglycemic event. The one thing I would add is, even though the typical devices in diabetes have been like pumps and pens and injectables, more and more we're trying to go through the closed loop and the open loop. Um, I'll just give you one example, and I think this is well known that, you know, kids have type 1 diabetes, and they have to remember to give the shots for themselves. Um, Sometimes they don't want to do it because they're feeling shy. They don't want other people to know that they have the disease. They are too busy. They're running around. And the other thing is they have to maybe they feel like, hey, I need to go to the bathroom to get my shot or go away in a secluded area to get the shot. 
On the other hand, the parent is thinking, oh, has my kid taken the shot? Do I need to call them and, and let them know that they need to take the shot? There is so much complications around trying to manage a child's uh, treatment. So I think when people have like close loop systems and a child is having it, number one, the child may not even know it's happening and it's happening and it's covered by the dress or whatever it is or the shirt. Second thing is most importantly, the, the mom or the dad is feeling like, okay, there is a system and my baby is in control when it comes to the glycemia and I don't have to keep worrying about it. I think those are the things, the type of research that we are so much interested in saying, okay, pumps, smart devices, what are the things that we can think about that can bring, bring not only patient relief, but the parents' relief. So what are the benefits uh, are there to using wearable devices for data collection and, and just doing the analysis at the end of the day uh, that's so common in clinical trials? When we better understand the patient, we can better help them. Value will come from a personalized optimal solution. So with the timely data, we can better to provide more individualized care so we can improve the patient outcomes. So, uh, for, ex- for example, we can better understand the patient's eating behaviors and also use the GPS information to locate where they eat. So if we combine this information, then we can be- provide a better recommendation. Another part is when the more data comes in, then we can learn not from each individual, we can from a population. Sometimes the patient uh, experience some of the difficulties to control themselves. Maybe other patient, a similar patient, already have a similar experience. So instead of like the each those patients to uh, take the wrong treatment, take not optimal treatment, or take a, uh, treatment at a not optimized time, so we can learn from other people to provide this information to let kind of to guide these people to achieve the optimal result. Well, there are any pitfalls to this kind of technology? Uh, for example, how robust are are they to damage or real time data backup? So uh, these days we have a pumps, pens, CGMs have different uh, devices. As you know, the pharmaceutical company is really conservative compared with other, com- compared with many other industries. And we all, all our devices is thoroughly tested, and uh, have a diff- we have a different uh, uh, steps of test this, and uh, how robust they are, and what if they lost the connections, and what if they give the wrong directions, and and we we also control how large of the amount of insulin they can inject at a certain moment to keep the patient safety at the first place. So I would say uh, the pharmaceutical company and also work with the reg- working with the regu- regulators to be really careful in this space. I didn't see a big pitfall in this area, but we want continue learning around this line. And I agree with uh, Howard. He, he said it really well. There are no major pitfalls from where we see but I, I think it is exciting in the meantime, though, that there are challenges and how do we ensure. And part of the challenges is, and he, he uh, mentioned, how I mentioned regulatory. So I think it's an exciting challenge for us to ensure that we have well-planned, validated systems that can stream in large amount of patient data because now you're going to be getting a lot of information that's coming in. But we also want to make sure that this data is secure. Um, it's confidential to protect the patient interests and also continues to be blinded as much as possible because we, don't want to, we want to keep the patient information secure, but also we should be able to format it when we get large streams of data to do the analysis that we need to do. So these are some interesting challenges, and there are ways for us to work around it, and we are learning in this, like Howda said. But I wouldn't call them pitfalls, but I look at them as opportunities. I was just thinking about his statement um, that the 
pharmaceutical industry is uh, very conservative and how that itself is a very conservative statement. Um, yeah, the, the pharmaceutical industry is extremely conservative. Um, so are there any statistical or analytical challenges for, for this type of data? I mean, for example, volume is one obvious concern. Uh, if you're taking measurements every minute or even more often, uh, how do you deal with these kinds of challenges? Uh, Richard, I think you're spot on. You're absolutely right. Um, there are a lot of challenges for the uh, analytics. We need to develop these new analytical paradigms really helping the patient in terms of the digital age. I just give a few examples. Um, kind of we are thinking about unstructured data, streaming data, and big data. Just one example on the streaming data. Traditional thinking is more like a database log thinking. And right now, with the new data continue flow in, we need to develop this uh, streaming data analytics. One example is that uh, every people can know how to calculate the average of 100 numbers. That's actually, there are two ways to calculate this. One way is to collect all of these 100 numbers add them up, divide by 100. I call this thinking is the traditional database log thinking because we need to store all of the data. That's another way of thinking of the problem. The another way is we only need to store two numbers. The first number is the average of the first 99 numbers. This is one number. The another number is the 99. Once they got the new numbers come in, they can automatically update the solution. This thinking is more like a streaming data thinking. Uh, but the real problem is more complicated than this. And we develop a personalized solution, recommendation system, even fit the linear model. How can we develop this analytical solution to save appropriate information instead of save all of the data points and to continue to update the solution? And how can we make sure the updated solution can achieve the optimal? That's fascinating. Um, something so simple, it seems obvious when you hear it. <laughs> So are there any regulatory considerations for using wearable uh, or other electronic devices such as smartphones for capturing data? Uh, for example, are there any specific uh, U.S., EU, or ICH guidance? Uh, I think a previous Shanti already mentioned that the regulatory is working with the regulatory is also important. And we do see a few uh, uh, regulation guidance have been released. For example, FDA has been very active in the digital health areas. Uh, FDA has been released the digital health guidance in uh, December back to 2016. In addition, in the February this year, FDA also released the machine learning uh, uh, complicates FDA clinical decision support guidance. In addition, on the April 5th this, uh, last year, the two new EU regulatory guidance already released uh, on this uh, device and the diagnostics. Uh, both, regulation, both regulations have been published in the official journals in the e, uh, EU and FD, kind of in the medical, medical journals. In terms of this area, it's very exciting, and we're also closely working with the regulators to moving forward in this area. So one potential benefit of using these portable devices is the ability to conduct micro-randomized experiments. Have you been able to apply these techniques to your research? And the short answer is yes. The concept of the micro-randomization was first proposed by the Susan Murphy, and we continue to work closely with our academia uh, colleagues in this area. The, the method is used primarily for the observational study on the mobile health, mo mobile health uh, to study the optimal treatment sequence. 
The micro-randomization belongs to the general method called dynamic treatment regime, which is a set of methodology and the so-called reinforcement learning algorithms. We have been published papers in this area, and also we are uh, embarked and make the advance in these areas. We plan to work more on these areas and have some re uh, device and news and release in this area. What findings have you observed as a result of your research into diabetes? Uh, do you see these techniques having greater utility in the future? So we have been working a lot on the individualized, personalized solution. So using device to continue to monitor patient situation and to make just in time of the recommendations for patient, I, we believe that should be a trend. I just ha add one thing to what Howard has said, because like he mentioned, we have done quite a bit of work around individualized treatment recommendation, analytical approach, and we worked very closely with the healthcare industry to get the data and look at it in different ways. Now, the application of this ITR uh, machine learning algorithm that utilizes both the randomized control trial and the real-world data um, at is has been great because we've been able to look at what is the best optimal treatment selection for the at the patient level, depending on their history. Um, so we're also looking into what are the next stages. We've seen some really exciting results so far, but we're also looking at the next stages in terms of in addition to one parameter or one measure, which is what we saw now, what are some additional measures that we can actually look at so that we can come up with some kind of a composite that provides value to the patient? Well, the future sounds exciting. Uh, and this is the last question, and uh, hopefully it's not too leading. Uh, the biopharmaceutical section has been really successful uh, in recent years at uh, creating and nurturing scientific working groups, ad addressing different statistical data and regulatory topics. And I think by the end of 2018, uh, I think we already have a half a dozen groups, and I think there's three or four more that are uh, under consideration. Uh, so do you think there's a future for possibly a scientific working group for wearable devices uh, or perhaps more generally to include uh, electronic devices that capture any kind of data? Uh, and what kind of challenges would that group need to address? Uh, yes, absolutely. So actually before this interview, Shanti and I were just talking about exactly the same topic. Richard, as you mentioned about the future is very exciting. When we talk about the future, we may need to first look at our history. I will think about the human histories. If we think about the human history, recently I read a book called the Sapiens. It talks about how human beings evolved. There's one very important critical moment is from hunting to farming. Hunting is a kind of small group of people to do the hunting. The farmings, they need uh, broad collaborations from different groups. Uh, some people work on the irrigation, some people work on different types of the work. I was thinking that in terms of the futures and in these areas, in to better leverage machine learning, smart device, and we do move, need to move from the hunting to the farming for the future. What I mean for here is that we need broad uh, disciplines to collaborate together, not only for statisticians, maybe some IT group, maybe kind of uh, uh, engineer, uh, engineers to make the device, to making to making the device, some of the medical colleagues, different disciplines need to work together. We are envision maybe in the very near future, so we can statisticians can lead this group, but also incorporate other disciplines. We can work together through this uh, uh, working group to really moving forward for this area. I agree with the Howard. I would add, though, that it is essential right now more than any to create such a group um, on two fronts. One is, as we look at universities and as we are recruiting people, 
you can see that they're getting more and more cross-discipline, especially with computer science and engineering and statistics. I mean, part of the reason that they're doing this is because they are looking to say, okay, how do we t- get the statistical thinking with the engineering background that's essential, and then also the algorithm computer science standpoint, especially when we're looking at artificial intelligence. So the universities are already going that way. And I think so it becomes very important for us now to say, okay, what are the key disciplines that we want to bring to the table, to Howard's point? You need to have each one is probably going to bring their strength, whether you're talking about bioinformatics people or whether you're talking about engineers who are going to be dealing with different differential equations or computer science uh, programmers or statisticians. Uh, some of them could also be th- people like operations research because they may be thinking very differently from, from the standpoint. But I also think it would be helpful for us to also get the patients, payers, some of them to the table because we can be in this theoretical aspect. But if you're not able to translate that into something that the patients and payers are saying, oh, now I understand some of the details and what you're doing, and I have more faith now in your instruments, in your smart devices, in your pumps, in your continuous glucose monitoring, then they're going to have a more pull rather than we just pushing this. So I think it becomes extremely important at this point in time for us to have the right people bring in this kind of diversity and inclusion to drive innovation. And I wouldn't want to miss this chance for us to do this. And I think it's a great idea, Richard, that you have sought people to say, okay, you know, is there an interest in this? And if there is an interest, how would we go forward with this? And who are the key people who should be at the table so that we can drive this more effectively, efficiently? And the more we drive this, the regulators may also may look at it as saying, okay, you know, how can we work with the pharmaceutical industry and the patient advocacy groups and others to say we can make this easier accessible to the patients and the, for the payers to also say, okay, you know what, how can we make it easily accessible for the affordable for the patients from that standpoint? So I want to say that, you know, thank you so much for doing this because this is not something that, oh, it's just another topic on another theory and it's, you know, a cool thing for today. This is not just today, but it's the future. Uh, well, and uh, on that positive note, uh, thanks uh, to both of you for talking with me today. Uh, it's definitely exciting, and I look forward to looking forward to seeing what uh, what's coming in the future. Thank you. And there you have it, episode fifty-seven on personalized medicine and wearable devices. Note that it will soon be time to submit proposals for short courses and parallel sessions for the 2019 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop, so get those ideas together. The 2019 co-chairs are Judy Lee and Renee Reese. If you have any comments or have an idea for a podcast or a question, uh, send me an email at rzinc at targetpharmasolutions.com. That's R-Z-I-N-K at targetpharmasolutions.com. Until next time.